Good afternoon, this is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 28 January 2024. Now, um, I have a perfectly fine lecture, it will be lecture number 17, on leukotrienes, which is, of course, our biomedical portrait number 8. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to go beyond 20 lectures in this series, but that's probably how many more we have. This would have been number 17, and we may actually start it. But um, I came across a musical irony uh, over the weekend and thought about it, realized that it fits well in a discussion that we might have about the distinction between opinion and knowledge, and I, I think I'm, I think I'm right in labeling this lecture, sententia non fengo, which of course is a bit of a lift off of um, our our dear friend Newton when he said hypotheses non fengo, which means he doesn't like hypotheses in his cosmological astronomical, mathematical, research science. Well, you know, we do love hypotheses in uh, the kind of research that we study here in authentic biochemistry. And I think that Newton, if he was really grilled on it, if he had a dialectical appointment with a good interlocutor, he may discover that he too was quite full of hypotheses. But opinion I think he would also agree he doesn't want to find in his work. And so that's what we're going to talk about here. A subtitle for this could be A Minor Prolegomenon to the Purpose of Authentic Biochemistry. Or, if you like, How Beautiful Music, discussion thereof, led me to reflecting on Kant's critique of judgment and the disreputation of mere opinion. So here we go. One of the phenotypic features of mere opinion is the mode of transmission that's employed. Whether verbal or written, uh, opinion obtains as a conclusion. You listen for it. A conclusion a priori to a set of premises or as in the execution of a dialectical analysis, the synthesis is the opinion offered as conclusive even when it has not been rendered by a thoroughgoing examination of the a priori thesis and antithesis. So in my view, these few characteristics allow one to separate mere opinion from what could be called sound categorical judgments, where the latter require verification of the premises as foundational and or coherent with well-established truth that is then mechanistically, linguistically validated by the structure of the argument. Now, many discussions that can be heard on podcasts fail to rise above mere opinion. 
because the interlocutors rely on personal experiences to authenticate their judgments. While experience is a valid source of justification, when it can be transparently verified, it still requires the abstraction of the evidence into a logical argument before validation can even be measured. And one still requires soundness of the argument in any case. So besides fallacies that can arise from selective experiences with known or perhaps occult bias and maybe prevarication, many other inborn errors of judgments can be articulated, including unfounded connectivity, inappropriate density, and superfluous imagery. Now, those are terms I'm introducing right now to the discussion. Uh, they should be self-evident. Go back and listen to them. But I am prepared to expand upon their meaning to you in detail later on when we have more time for that particular authentic discussion. Now, let's get deeply into this. Transcendental aesthetics, pure, which basically describes pure intuition, a priori, without an object, or I should say, event of sensation. Rather, a transcendental aesthetic exists in the mind purely as a form of sensibility. Now, I'm getting into this so that we can, I'm giving you now a dialectical argument about why mere opinion is not found um, in authentic biochemistry. And so I'm starting out, first of all, by giving you an introduction, which is what I did. Now I'm giving you details of the terms I'm going to use, and I'm going to solidify every premise and series of premises with a conclusion that's based on logic, categorical logic. <clears throat> now, sensibility itself is different from understanding. And, and this is how I know this. If you separate all the results from sensation, except the pure form of the phenomena, which is a priori, two pure forms of that sensorial experience manifest. They are space and time, and they are not objective realities. Now, I could give you all kinds of references where I get this well understood conceptual logic, but I would simply just point back to Plato. And in Plato, I would go to the early dialogues like Euthyphro. But where it is really examined in detail in ancient literature isn't uh, Plato. It is back at the level of the, the Egyptian 
philosopher Plotinus. So Plotinus is actually a Neoplatonist. And Plotinus wrote several Aeneids. Aeneid just means nines. Uh, he wrote six books called the East Ones and Aeneid. If you want to go back and look at what Neoplatonism did with Platonism uh, in, like, say, the second century AD, you can then see what developed into um, our whole corpus of literature and philosophy on the faculties of reason. And I could, I could find in Plotinus um, the, the root cause of what Immanuel Kant selected to discuss in all three of his critiques. The critique of pure reason, the critique of practical reason, and the critique of judgment. Okay. So rather, th rather than this whole description of phenomena and about the fact that space and time manifest, they are indeed subjective forms of sensibility, or if you want, sense awareness. The person's sensoria, the individual sensoria, is subjectifying space and indeed space-time structure, of the universe. So in Newtonian physics of space-time, you have a determined causal relationship. Where is there, in that particular environment, any chance for free will? Well, at the beginning, because space-time, or space and time as Newton saw them, Space-time structure is actually subjective. It's subjective because once you isolate out using phenomenological sort of resources, once you isolate out how one experiences the world and says, well, it's spatial and it's temporal, you can see that it is, it is absolutely subjective, subjective to our sensoria. Right? Yes. And because of that, it is a product of our attention, and our attention is the result of our exercise of free will. So you have phenomena versus noumena, and that basically is appearance versus reality. And from all of that, you can also obtain, when thinking about statements that are made, such as opinions versus dialectical analyses, there is a moral responsibility that's retained okay? because, you're, because it's free choice of the will. Now, there, there is the sensoria, and the sensoria engage upon our individual preferences once they are alerted to the given stimuli. And that is an aesthetic function and it offers a continuous current of sensorial signals that, of course, are decoded biochemically into what are known as discrete sense data. And the old term for that was actually intuition, which represents the world of phenomena. And it offers, it, at, the very, at the very initiation of the sensing, an initial 
meaning. We qualify the sensoria with a meaning. And that in doing that, we're responding to our sensory neurons and our motor neurons, which as it turns out, are established within the human body for the purpose of informing an ontology for individuals, each individual, as they exist in the world. Now, I talked about this before, and I've wrote, I wrote this, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. So if you've heard me do this before, Bear with me because I have to include this in my uh, statement uh, in the lecture today. So here you go. A narrative I wrote. A woman can enjoy a bouquet of flowers given to her from, let's say, her lover. She could be, for example, though, herself, what she does for a living, she could be a plant physiologist. Now, as a plant physiologist, she would know that the reproductive anatomy of that bouquet of flowers, the flowers individually, would include the sepals, which support what's known as the female pistillate structure with its subtending ovule and extended stigma, and that the filaments support the stamen with its pollen-producing anther. She'd also know that most commercial varieties of bouquet roses are sterile and thus propagated vegetatively through rootstocks. She would probably also know that the leaves have chloroplasts and within them organize stromal lamellae and granal stacks and that that organization allows for increased surface area to expose the protein pigment light harvesting complexes one and two containing the porphyrin ring-structured manganese-containing chlorophyll and the isoprenoid all-transretinol dimer, beta-carotene, and accessory pigments that absorb in the blue spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum, and those are called riboflamins. And there's also an associated packed electron transport chain with iron and copper dense protein complexes that split H2O into molecular oxygen and free protons to drive the linked reductive pentose phosphate pathway yielding triosugars and NADPH used for reductive biosynthesis of glucose and fructose, ultimately to obtain the disaccharide sucrose from the rubisco-assimilated atmospheric carbon dioxide. Sure, because she's a plant physiologist, you know all this. Even though she was just given a bouquet of roses, right? Now, she would know about the anthocyanin pigments, too that are the source of the deep red color in a rose, as received by the vertebrate eye. Rhodopsin protein pigment complex, uh, composed of retinoic acid plus the protein opsin, as provided by specific wavelengths, in the electromagnetic spectrum again, 
roughly between 620 to 680 nanometers of incident incoming light. And that even that the biosynthesis of that polyphenolic compound starting from the shikimic acid pathway through chalcone synthesis via addition of malonyl-CoA from central metabolic sources and subsequent downstream reaction leading to hydroxylations and glycosylation yielding the anthocyanin pigments. She would also know about the biosynthesis of 2-phenylethanol. Now, 2-phenylethanol is the aromatic source of the rose petals involving the deamination of, of course, L-phenylalanine and the reduction of the next intermediate phenylacetaldehyde to the alcohol and the potential for glycosylation that serves as a reservoir for the release of 2-phenylethanol after senescence initiation or simply by touching the petals. But in the end, and I could go on, of course. But in the end, a rose is still a rose. And she will love the fragrance and the presentation of the banquet, banquet, bouquet. And if things are as they should be, she will glow with warm affection for the kindness and devotion demonstrated by the one who gave it to her. She doesn't need to be a plant physiologist to know beauty. That's the point. It's fine that she does know all the things I just mentioned and a whole lot more, I would assume. It's fine that she does understand how all of that biochemical synthesis occurs. But her joy in that association of the event presentation of that bouquet to her senses and the combining of that reception perception to a feeling is what the aesthetic judgment is about. So you can say plant physiologist, but say a woman who practices law or who is a surgeon or who is a graphic artist or a mountain climber or one who takes care of her kids and drives them to school can have that same kind of joy and feeling of love when presented with a bouquet of roses as the plant physiologist. That is a judgment of the beautiful. It is not supported by concepts, as I've just said. But is it an opinion? Well, for reasons I won't go into right now, the answer will be a categorical modal no. Why? All people would generally find a rose beautiful without having any kind of certain objective characteristics other than it looks and smells beautiful. It must be a rose, and being a rose makes it beautiful universally. 
aesthetic judgments are like that. Now, I will proceed to say that great poets and philosophers have tried their hand at examining the world. Uh, maybe I'm being very generous there. <laughs> their reasons are strikingly similar, although their methods are almost as unique as the individual who takes his pen to paper. Now, research scientists also examine their world. And in my case, as a biochemist, humble biochemist, we're looking at the natural living world. So we define ourselves, right? And confine ourselves. But research scientists that I've said many times to you, holding a PhD, are both philosophers of their research and doctors of their scientific discipline. It's what that degree, it's what our degree stands for, PhD, right? So humbly, in all humility, we are hybrids in that we recombine two very well-developed well dialectical hypostases of knowledge-based reason. Where the research scientist differs from the poet and the philosopher is in our apodictic modality. We seek how as it must be true. Okay? Very strange turn of words there, but it's the best equivalency I could find. Let me now let me give you a complete breakdown of what I'm talking about. Let me check my time. Uh, taking longer than I thought. No, we're doing all right. Okay. So hopefully we're, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping you interested in what I'm saying here. I can stand by that premise that, we're, that research scientists, particularly biochemists, for example, seek how as it must be true. Okay, now I'm going to tear that apart. I stand by the premise and its truth nature or its veracity, if you like, because our task as biochemists and purpose is to ask the appropriate questions via deduction to generate a null hypothesis that must stand or fail after creating a precise and accurate experimental design and execution eoipso generating reliable data and the, that the species of event that we study remains unchanged by our results and discussion when we're publishing a paper, for example, or presenting a lecture. Now, to put it plainly, I'm not saying you don't understand what I just said, but another way, a rewording of that. We have before us, if we're looking at human biology, human biochemistry in particular, we have before us a living human being that functions some 75 to 80 years on average with high genetic fidelity, physical biochemical reproducibility, and viable <laughs> mental and physical health 
until he dies from either necrosing senescence, mutational oncogenesis, or outright dysbiotic organ failure. We know that he lives until he dies. Our quest is to reveal how this occurs. Sure, we make insufferable mistakes in our research, but we know that when we fail we cannot, and we cannot provide the answer, we know it's because what already self-proves that it must be so. So if we're wrong about understanding our, in doing our biochemical research about a given pathway that supports a given physiological function, for example, that supports the living system to live to be 75 or 80, if we're wrong about that, we know that we're wrong because the organism, the human being, lives. So if we're wrong about the end point of what we're studying, where it doesn't seem like it can be a viable pathway, that supports that given physiological function, let's say an innate immune response associated with leukotriene burst, then we know we must be on the wrong track. So we seek to know how it, as it is, that is, as it is living, must be true. So our failures can be obscured for sure for some time, but they never fail ultimately to reveal themselves as long as we are honest. And for their part, the poet and the philosopher may also seek truth, but when they fail, well, where is their standard? Right? We have a standard as the living system. Where is the standard when you're uh, developing flowery language, language to describe what it's like to be on a high mountain meadow at noon? in July up Logan Canyon, Utah. Right? There was a little bit of subjectivity there, right? So where is the internal standard? Our inter internal standard as research scientists is the proof, and the proof is that something is living, the event of living, okay? And that cannot be denied. You see the difference. That's why I'm saying it's an apodictic thing. As a scientist, you're trying to describe how something is happening. Not so much what, because that's all substance ontology. And you know that is just not supported by living. It's all event ontology. So we know, we know something's happening, but how does it happen? Right? And that's really what we're looking at in terms of the really deep understanding when we develop even our rather dull and mundane null hypotheses. So in terms of deductive and inductive reasoning, we can continue down this discussion further. And I admit, this is kind of a switchback mountain trail, of which I'm pretty familiar. So grand schema and precise analyses are, of course, the foundations of epistemology and metaphysics. And that's where logical argumentation has been put to the result of 
masterful paradigms and synthesized worldviews as they are etched into the wax tablet scrolls, stationary, and stock paper bond over the millennia in chambers of the great philosophers. Now, the poets, lyricists, and novelists rely on storytelling, narrative ensemble, rhythmic cadence to emphasize their great sympathies and troubled doubts across pages, sometimes fulfilled with genius flair by musical scores and anthems to the sun. They laugh on cloudy afternoons and mourn long summer mornings as they weave the contrary with the satisfying and so entertain their complaints and observations into hearts and minds they may never meet. That is the sign of the true poet. So I'm not, I will never say that you should compare research scientists' product with the poet, with the philosopher, and say that, well, the research scientist, because we are tethered to that apodictic how something works, because there it is, whereas a poet or a novelist can can draw pictures in the sky that never did exist because they can really embellish the faculty of imagination. Now, scientists require the faculty of the imagination just as much, but we are still confined or tethered to, ultimately, giving an explanation of how living systems work. And they do work because there they are, right? So there's, that's the distinction. Philosophers, too, have more leeway than a research scientist.